My liver hurts so bad. <laughs> and my head. I'll I'll talk extra quietly. Well, it's it's fine. Hey everyone, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. I'm joined as I am each and every week, pretty much, by Scott Nelson. What's up, man? I guess the only time that I wasn't joined by you is when I was out of town. Um, yeah, and then there was like one, like a year ago. Oh, that's true, but I, it's been a while. Yeah, it's it's pretty much the two of us every every week, right? But music ended abruptly. I think I hit stop rather than fade out. My apologies if you were rocking out to that as we are. Good news. Scott, It'll come again at the end. That's true. Are you uh, are you scrolling there on your iPad or are you just swatting at it? Uh, scrolling. Okay. Scrolling. I've, so Very I've aggressive not, scrolling. I have not opened Twitter on my iPad in like three days, which means there's... A lot to catch up on. Yeah, like 4,000 unread tweets. Do you not just tap the top and go straight to the top? Well, I've never tried that. Let's see. Like you do on your phone? Wait, you do that on your phone? Yeah. Do you not know about the uh, tap to top? Like and it scrolls to the top of... Really <gasps> what the... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Melson is amazed at what he's just learned. That's fantastic. It's super handy. Well, how about them apples? That's right. If you have an iPad or an, an iPhone, that's right, everyone. If you tap the very top, like right at the very top of the screen, it will scroll to the top of whatever you're looking at. Twitter, websites, whatever. That is just remarkable. Yes, very handy. Quite handy. All right. What uh, else can you teach me today? Well, um... Let me think about that for a moment. I'm sure there's something. <laughs> Scott, this is our first podcast since the election. We are a, a week and a half, almost two weeks post-election. Yeah, about, about 10 days. And let's be honest, we actually recorded this episode twice already. Yeah, it's not our first podcast. It's the first one that you'll get to hear. Right. But it's actually our third election recap <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we did two recordings the day after, and my computer crapped out on both of those, which is probably in the best interest of our listeners because we were very tired the next day. Yes. It was a long night. We got up, we cleaned up the tower theater and loaded a bunch of chairs back under the stage and then came here to record. And it, uh, we sounded like a couple of sleepy heads. Yeah. We thought we were going to die. <laughs> sleepy heads. Like, yeah. We, we, we were like, there was an election. It's fine. Anyway, here we are a couple of weeks, uh, post election. We've, Seen a lot, read a lot of commentary, and uh, and I think we have a better perspective on what happened and where we're at. Um, so maybe to start at the top of the ticket, clearly, Kevin Stitt won the gubernatorial election. What? I hadn't heard that. Indeed. <laughs> that's, brand, that's brand new information. And um, so let's talk about the margin there. It was a big margin, bigger, huge Yes. Much larger than anticipated. Yeah. So, you know, a lot, like before the election, the conventional wisdom from from most people, I think, was that th this was going to be pretty close. You know, we had, you know, I think we would classify that we had the race as a toss up. Our forecast showed that Edmondson we thought was going to win by about two and a half. Um, certainly well within the margin of error. But if you were going to pick a winner, it looked like it was going to be him. But uh, a toss-up for all intents and purposes. Uh, Cook Political Report had the right race rated as a toss-up. Uh, Larry J. Sabato's Crystal Ball Political Forecast from University of Virginia Institute of Politics had the race as the lean Republican. 538 had the race at likely Republican with Kevin Stitt projected to win by, I 
want to say a 7.3% something uh, on, election, close, yeah. on election day, like seven, seven and a half percent or so. Um, and instead we got a 53 point 54.3% for Kevin Stitt to drew Evanson's 42.23. Mm-hmm. So a 12.1% margin and, uh, Libertarian Chris Powell coming in with 3.44%. So a 12% margin going either way right. is not something I think most people no, saw, yeah. saw coming. No, and and uh, I think we can clearly say that the third-party candidate, the Libertarian candidate, did not detract. I mean, it, it may have detracted from one or the other, but it wasn't like within the difference. It didn't make the difference. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Drew, I mean... To quote uh, Ryan Kiesel from the ACLU, uh, he got blown out of the water. That's not a direct quote, but I, Ryan, <laughs> however Ryan said it on uh, on KGOU the other day was um, he, I think, acknowledged that, that Drew got beat pretty handedly. Yeah, it, it was not close. And not only was it not close, it was never close. Right, right? yeah. Like he, at no point yeah. in the night was it close, now, which was... Which is interesting, right, to me? And um, it was so it was not close. And also, I think uh, a big news of the night was voter turnout. Right? Oh, it's F- huge! Fifty-six percent of uh, eligible voters. It is. I, I or believe registered voters. Excuse yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I believe the, I believe the state election board said that it is like the, the most we've seen in a governor's race since at least nineteen eighty-six. Something like I that. I think. Like, and maybe even before that, like maybe like as far as we have records, we don't actually have turnout records from before 1960. Um, it's not, yeah, it's not the highest ever, but it was, it was it's certainly close. notable. Um, and I mean, we kind of heard that and it seems like turnout was high across the board, right? Both parties, all parties. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So everybody came out. And so one of the things that we saw was that some interesting facts just to there are no moral victories here, right? So if you're Drew Edmondson, this probably doesn't make you feel, make you feel any better. Right. Drew Edmondson got more votes than anyone has ever gotten in a governor's election in Oklahoma and lost. He's the first person to get 500,000 votes and lose. Yes. And he is also the first, per- like the number of votes that he got would have been enough to win the governor's race in every governor, every governor's race we've had, except for like five or six of yeah. them or something. Yeah. So, but Kevin's did get more votes. Yes. So, Second so, place is the first loser, right? And so that's and that's and that's a product of like that's yeah that's the, that's a product of the the turnout that you see. The turnout was not disproportionate on one side or the other, right? Yeah, it went up across the board. So some of the other news is about uh, people who voted straight party, right? So as we discussed in our last episode, at the top of your ballot is a box where you can list Republican, Democrat, and Libertarian because those are the three parties that are currently recognized in Oklahoma. And you can fill in one of those, and it will then vote for the candidate from that party for each race that they there is one. Uh, and something like a third of voters voted straight party, right? Yes. Uh, well, so sixty six percent of Republicans voted straight party, and thirty three percent of Democrats voted straight party. No, no, sixty six percent of people who voted, voted Republican, e- no, who voted, voted straight party, voted Republican. Yeah, that's yes, two thirds of the. Of everyone who voted straight party, two-thirds of them were Republican. Yes, that's the way to say it. But I think how many people voted straight party out of the whole thing, I thought it was, it was a, a big chunk, yeah. like 25 or 30%. And, and I will say, and I, I spoke with News 9 earlier today about this, it should air on Monday, that 
um, man, we don't need straight party. Not because it's a partisan thing. I'm sure that people will say like, oh, well, you just want this. Um, it's one of those liberal agenda things. Like, no, this election reform is good. I wanted this when the Democrats were in charge, and I'm going to keep fighting for it. And no matter who's in who's in power, right? Because yep. it's, I, in my opinion, and lots of others, I think it is a uh, a a lazy way to vote, right? Like, if you're going to vote for somebody, vote for that person. Fill in the box. It's not that hard. I mean, it's not going to take you hours. Like, it literally would take you 15 seconds longer. Yeah. So. Uh, so that's part of the news. Also, um, so Drew lost, but there were a lot of precincts that he won in somewhat unusual areas. So he got the metros, got Oklahoma County, almost got Tulsa County. But even within those counties, certainly, you know, each precinct is a little bit different. Oklahoma Watch had a great article that had each county or each precinct colored just red or blue which doesn't really indicate how red or how blue, just right. you know, if that party got one more vote than the other. But there were some precincts up in Edmond that went blue for Drew. No, totally. Um, you know, that's that's one of the things that's interesting is and we it I I can't like show this because we're working on a way to show this, but um yeah, there are places the places for the most part that went blue went like really, really blue, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But if they didn't go really, really blue, they were red, right? right. Like that kind of like it was, yeah. You right. know what I'm saying? Like, like something like there weren't uh, a lot of purple districts, or right. Precincts, right? So like 25 ish percent of Edmondson's vote total was from Oklahoma County. Oh wow! Like 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 25 percent of his statewide vote total was from one county. Was from Oklahoma, which county. is the most populous county, right. but still. but a huge chunk of the rest of it. Came from Tulsa. Right. Right. Even though he didn't win Tulsa County, he still got a ton of votes there. Right. So Drew won four counties. He won Oklahoma County, Cleveland County, uh, Oklahoma County, Cleveland County. Cole. No, he won uh, Muskogee County, I think, right? I thought he lost Muskogee County. Let me see here. I'm pulling it up right now. This is the problem with recording two weeks later. So he won Oklahoma County, Cleveland County, Cherokee County. Ah, that's right. Yeah. And then uh, Muskogee County, I think he won by like... A hair. Oh, that's right. Just a, a few hair's votes, breath, which is a, where he's from originally. A, a cat's right? whisker, if you will. Yeah. So Muskogee County was Edmondson five fifty point zero zero two six percent to uh, Stitt's forty nine point nine nine seven percent. Ooh, that is close. That's yes. That's, that's tight. That's, that's tight. Just a few votes, especially for a not a very populous county. Indeed. So other races of note: um, Kendra Horn uh, won her bid for the. 5th Congressional District, which is Oklahoma County, uh, uh, Pottawatomie County, a little bit of, I guess that's it, Seminole County yeah. too. In, in, an, in an upset that was was notable across the nation. 538 had it listed as their biggest upset of the night. Biggest upset of the night. Um, and so that's pretty exciting. Uh, this week, Ms. Horn has been in Washington with all the other new members for their orientation. That's been weird to see someone on the news that I... That we know, and I mean, full disclosure, right. Kendra is she's on our board. It's on the board. Although I guess we should talk to her and see if she plans to continue now that she's in Congress. I mean, Congress women aren't that busy, right? <laughs> she didn't have that much to do, <laughs> just fixing the country, right? Like just her office. It's a hell of a commute, though, <laughs> right? You think she'll be? At the, you think she'll be at the Christmas party? We gotta plan one. <laughs> That's a good question. That would be cool. Um, so that was big. Also, um, Democrats won. They, so 
as the legislature as a whole, they didn't didn't add to their numbers really. Yeah, they actually lost their net minus two in the house, right? Yeah, minus two in the house. No, yeah, yeah, they're down to twenty five in the house, and they're up to nine in the Senate. Um, and but they won a bunch of other races, and so some of the county races, that kind of stuff, and all almost all the races that Democrats won in the state were in metro areas, right? Yes. And the ones they lost were in rural areas. Right. Yeah, so if you're going to try and like break down what kind of district did Dems win and what kind of district did Republicans win, um, Dems, for the most part, won uh, urban, some suburban districts, and ours, for the most part, won exurban rural districts with some suburban districts, too. So, What does exurban mean? So exurban would be like... Um, I'm trying to think of a town in urbans that got divorced, uh, like not Guthrie, but like, like not suburban, but like it's a town that is a separate entity, but is like within a commuting distance of an urban metropolitan area. Right. So like you can live there, but work in the city. Okay. So like Jones, maybe Spencer. Yeah, maybe those would be good examples. It's tough because Oklahoma people just drive everywhere, right? Yes, it's a very... I have a staff that lives in Chickasha and commutes <laughs> to the city every day. I used to have someone lived in Shawnee and would commute every day. That's funny. It's a long drive. Indeed. Plus, you got to pay tolls just to go to <laughs> go to work. That's a big deal. I was like, you pay like $4 a day just to come here, plus parking. But that's that would be the, that would be the breakdown, um, is that for the most part, ours won the more rural districts and Dems won the urban districts, which is, is not shocking. I don't think, right? Like that shouldn't be like brand new information to anyone. No. Um, but and here in the Metro, um, Democrats flipped Senate district 30 and 40, which was previously held by David Holt and Irvin Yin respectively. Yep. yep. Uh, so Julia Kurt and Carrie Hicks won those respectively. Yep. And those are both, uh, I, I live in Senate district 30. It's a weird shaped district that, uh, starts with like Lake Hefner, goes over down through Bethany, uh, like to west over to Bethany, down like Council, and then comes across 23rd um, to roughly Penn or so, and kind of on both sides of 23rd there. So it's like a big letter C if you're looking at it. Very odd district. Uh, and this District 40 is kind of Nichols Hills, the village area, and really just north of 40. So it kind of fills in the middle part of the C there. Yeah, it was... You know, another thing that was, and this is kind of on the heels of talking about uh, now senator electors. I guess they're not senator-elect anymore, right? They're, they're senators. senators. They were sworn in this week. Yeah, so Senator Hicks and Senator Kurt. Um, it, w- it was definitely the year of the woman kind of, I think, yeah, for continued. Sure. Um, so I believe all of the seats that Dems won or flipped, right, were or, won by women, right? I think so. I, will, I do know that right now the three... Um, most powerful minority positions in the state legislature are women. So the yeah. the House Minority Leader is Emily Virgin, and then the Senate Minority Leader is Kay Floyd, and I think she serves as the caucus chair as well. Yes, and so um, so I guess you know three positions, but it's only two people. Yeah, um, but that's pretty exciting. And then um, uh, Representative Tammy West is. Uh, she's a Republican, but she's appointed to, she's like a, the majority leader, I think in the house. Yeah. Not floor leader. That's still right. Eccles. Right. But yeah. I think she's the majority leader. Uh, and so it is pretty exciting to see. And now we started this last year, right? Um, was it last year? Year before last year before last we had, 
female chairs of appropriations and budget in both chambers, Leslie Osborne and um, uh, what is her name in the Senate? I can see her face too. I can too. Um, and so you almost had it there, didn't you? Yes. If you said, if you said, um, hmm. they had her birthday on the floor. They said happy birthday to her on the floor last year. Hang mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. It is Senator. Ooh. All right. My so close. I've almost got it in my head. I'm going to race you and we'll see who gets it first. Kim David. Kim David. There it is. I right afterwards. Um, yes, Senator Kim David uh, in the Senate, and so it's uh, exciting to see um, the the seats that the Democrats lost, the seat or the seats that you know we'll say flip the other way. There um, were in the House, uh, Donnie Condit and former House Minority Leader Steve Copeland, and what's those? So they're both rural areas. And what's uh, perhaps most notable about Copeland's loss is that he lost to a person, a Republican, who didn't spend a single dollar. Like, like literally did not didn't campaign, campaign at all. No, yeah. I mean, kind of said, like, I just, he got his name on the ballot and that was it. He said it was a word of mouth campaign. Which, <laughs> okay. Right. Um, so he told a few people. But I think that speaks to, like, the issue of straight party voting, right? I yeah. haven't looked. I'm, I don't, do they release state party do they release straight ticket voting by county? I don't think so. Or at least they have I bet not. we could get it. Yeah, I think we could get it. They haven't done it in the past. I think it makes, it speaks in part to straight party voting. I think it also speaks in part, though. I mean, Senator uh, Representative Copeland from Beggs, a, mm-hmm. a rural district, a rural, a very small rural Not ex-urban. Town, not ex-urban, not urban, suburban, or ex-urban. And, and so I wonder if it's more that like one thing seems clear as I'm looking. So we, we came up with, we came up with a heat map um, of a heat map that basically shows like kind of intensity of not just whether a County was red or red or blue, but the, the darkness, the intensity with which they're red or blue. Darkness, everyone. Um, And I will tell you, so we'll just, here's for example. So when you think of the County, so Oklahoma County was more blue than any other county in the state. Okay. Okay. So, all right. Do you know what the gubernatorial vote shook out to in Oklahoma County? Yeah. Uh, I don't No, I don't 56 for Edmondson 44 for Stitt. Okay. Okay. So the bluest County in the state went for Edmondson 56 44. You know what the reddest County in the state was? Um, I'm going to guess somewhere in the panhandle Cimarron. Okay. Yep. Yep. You want to take a stab at the vote share? Ooh, I'm going to say Stitt got 82%. Close. 87.6% for Stitt and 12.3% Edmondson. Wow. So 90% of people. Yeah. So the, the more rural districts, I think not to put every, you know, district in the same Mm -hmm. category, but there are a whole lot more districts, right? Like Stitt did not win or Edmondson did not win. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. Edmondson won a lot of counties by 75, 80%, mm-hmm. right? Drew got 56. You said Edmondson. Won. You meant Stitt. Okay. Stitt won a bunch of counties. Yes. 
by like 75%. Yes. And they are almost all rural. Right. So, and this is I, a trend that we saw across the country in this right, election. Right. So I think that part of what happened with representative Copeland was it didn't matter that his opponent didn't campaign because what mattered was the R next to his name. Yeah. 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 Like more than anything else. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be disappointing if you're him though, right? Like yes. you actually ran a campaign and you lost to somebody. Well, and he's been a good representative for that district too, right? Like, yeah. So here's an interesting thought though. Um, so the, the Democrats just elected Emily Virgin to be their minority leader since Copeland lost. And there was a discussion on some other podcast. Um, I forget which one it was. Uh, it might've been I still don't know what you're doing. listening to other podcasts. But I'm whatever. staying informed. Um, I think it was, I think it was Ryan Kiesel again on, um, on KGOU's this week in politics thing and talking about that, that Copeland was a more moderate Democrat, right? Oh yeah. No question. And, and Emily is a more progressive, uh, Democrat. And so wondering, excuse me, I've had hiccups all day. You all right? Yeah. Just got the. Got the hiccups, which is fun. Pickled liver and hiccups. That's what I have today. <laughs> You're not supposed to say that, dude. That's the quiet part. <laughs> um, I so I I think the party we've seen a shift across the country of of more progressive Democrats winning, right? So typically, when they flip a seat or if they've won any special elections, it's been for a more progressive candidate. And so I feel like in some ways, maybe them having Copeland who who was a more moderate and had to be certainly to be elected down there in Beggs. Um, but I don't, he might not have excited the base and, and however, however big the base might be there in, in Beggs. I can't imagine that they voted for a Republican, but you never know. Yeah. Also, I think with, you know, with higher voter turnout and, and registration numbers we've seen, I mean, I, I like that we have more data essentially that confirms what we've always said is that Oklahoma is a Republican state. Like, and it very well may be that if you actually polled every citizen or every person in the state, regardless of citizenship, that most of them would identify as a conservative or as a Republican. Well, so 55% of Oklahomans identify as conservative. Like okay. that's so sooner poll asked that question regularly. Yeah. And I mean, I've granted that's not everybody right There's mm-hmm. There's error there. Well, there are some conservative Democrats. Sure. So, but, but a solid 55% of the state identifies as conservative. And I believe the number has been at that 55% for like decades. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. a, that's not a, what the change is in party registration, but not in kind of ideological orientation. Right. Um, so, that's about that. Um, Republicans swept all the statewide elected races, which we yep. expected. Yep. Um, so those all went to the R's. Uh, and so since then, Governor Stitt, Governor-elect Stitt, he has not been sworn in yet, uh, but he has been putting together his and announced his transition team. Um, yeah. What do you think about what do you think about that? His transition team. Um, so I thought about this a lot, and you and I have kind of talked about it some. I, I. Some people are upset about it because it's a bunch of, you know, he ran as an outsider and he's appointed insiders, essentially, like people who have been around politics um, for a while. Some of them are good, like uh, Melissa Houston, who has been labor commissioner. She's on the transition team. Um, Matt Pinnell, who's the new lieutenant governor, is on the transition team. Former staffer for uh, Scott Pruitt. 
Um, I'm just going to put it out for a second. There so it is. said his name. <laughs> um, one of uh, one of Pruitt's former staffers uh, is on the transition team. Um, some attorneys, um, Mark um, Mark Nuttall, who was the campaign director for Pat Robertson's presidential campaign. Right, right. Um, which is not great, but <laughs> not. Mike Mazzi, um, who is a uh, former state senator, he is um, uh, he's a smart guy. I know. I think David Blatt thinks very highly of him. Um, for what that's worth, those of you who know David Blatt at OK Policy, he doesn't that, throw that around. No, well, Mark Mazzi is um, a a pretty reasonable guy when it comes to budgeting and finance. I think, and I was saying like, hey, we should look at specifically like looking at tax credits, right? And and listen, I mean, Stitt ran as an outsider, but we would all, I think, people would be maybe nervous if he also brought outsiders for the transition team. This isn't his actual cabinet or anything. This is just people helping him like kind of hit the ground running as best he can. No. And I mean, and on the one hand, like, so to me, to me, this is just, it's interesting for a couple of reasons, right? So one is that, yes. So he runs this, like I'm an outsider. I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm not governor Fallon. Like I'm going to be different. I mean, what functionally is the difference between this transition team and the one that governor Fallon used, right? Like, I mean, right. it's different people, it's different people, but like, this is, this is a very like standard, typical to be expected Republican transition yeah. team, right. which is fine. Right. Right. I mean, he's a, like, but, but it's, but again, it's not like this, this, Oh, all this fresh new faces and fresh new blood. Now, maybe you don't want fresh faces in your transition team. Maybe you want the most experienced people, right. but the flip side of that that's interesting to me is he also ran on a, I have all the experience I need to know how to do this because I'm a business guy. Mm-hmm. Well, like if you have all the experience you need and you know how to do it, like why do you need to rely on these people who've been around for 25 years? Right? <laughs> well, <laughs> like, so I'm, I think in some ways, regardless of who the governor was, it's like a, we, the public, it's easy to be apathetic or um, snarky about things. And I think no matter who he selected or if it had been Edmondson, no matter who he selected, there's going to be judgment, right? Like, Oh, sure. I mean, that you, once you get elected, like it starts immediately of like, Oh, well, we're going to, we're going to armchair quarterback everything about your administration. Yeah. And I mean, and again, on the one hand, it's like, okay, so maybe it's good that he has, you know, tapped some people with a lot of experience to help him make the transition. I honestly think that is a good right, thing. Right. Those aren't the people that probably, you know, I would have picked, but like, right. <laughs> but there are people that there are people that know, kind of how government works and they know like they know what they're doing, which is good. Right. It's just interesting to me that like, I thought his whole thing was that like, he doesn't need any of those people because he knows what to do. I mean, maybe, you know, I think we all know that you're only as good as the information you have, which, and I will just say right now, and you're going to hear me preach this for the next several years, probably um, that governor liked Stitt by his own admission, ran as an outsider and has said he doesn't know much about how government works. Um, and he has actually learned um, quite a bit already and like has taken time to meet with state agency heads and um, policy people to find out things. And so like in many cases has said, oh, that doesn't make sense. Um, and maybe that's what the people like about cash bail and like needing some like bail reform, right? And like the DA's budget is half funded through fines and fees. Well, right. That's a conflict of interest right there. Right? right. And so he's like recognizes some of that stuff. And so he will make decisions. Um, 
based on, and maybe set policy priorities based on those who speak to him. Now he's got people he already knows and trusts that are his, you know, advisors, but also it's up to us as voters, right? As constituents of the governor and all of our state elected officials, legislative and, and otherwise, that I think there's an impetus for us to step up, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, if whether it's the governor or the labor commissioner or your new state rep, we've got a third of the legislature is brand new. 38% is, is brand new. Um, there's altogether 77 members that have two years or less of experience. So they're either brand new or just still raw, like yeah, de- de- defrosted, but still right. not cooked. And so they don't have all the information. It's up to us. Like we as voters, you've got to contact your elected officials. And you got to stay informed, right? Yeah. So when you contact them, you got to have something to say, right? Like you can't just call me like, no, don't do this. Don't do that. Call and say, hey, don't do this. Do this other thing instead, right? Like, you or, do- or call and say, hey, me and uh, 12 of my friends at church are having uh, bagels. We'd like for you to, would you mind, could we schedule time for you to come and speak to us, right? Yeah. Get I'll, to know them. I'm also going to throw out there too. If your legislature does something that you really like and you feel like they did a good job, it's okay to call them and tell them that too. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to just call them and complain. Right. And yeah, it's it's really difficult, I think, because sometimes people do call and then the elected officials like, did you see what happened yesterday? And like, oh, yeah. no, I yeah. just heard, I read on Facebook that this was the case and it's not always the case, right? Right. Or And things can change at the Capitol pretty rapidly too. That's definitely true. So. Scott, um, we had a model that we used, a data model. I did, a forecast of sorts. A forecast. Let's let's have a little bit of model, model thoughts. thoughts. Yes. Dive into it. Um, so in terms of how our forecast did, the answer is uh, very, very poorly. Uh, very, very, very bad indeed. Uh, but... But so did everyone else. That's right. <laughs> so I feel less bad about how far we were off because everyone else was off by similar margins. Um, so we had projected that uh, we projected that uh, Edmondson would win the governor's race by about two and a half points. Um, and he lost by 12. So we were <laughs> off by 14. Um, uh, the only other, the only other forecast that I have quantitative data for is the 538 forecast that had him that had Stitt winning by like seven and a half. And then he won by 12. So the 538 forecast was off by about four and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, Cook Political had the race as a toss up. So say they were off by 12. Um, and then Larry Sabato's crystal ball, I'd say off by eight to 10, somewhere in there. Because uh, they had the race as lean Republican, not likely. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time the last 10 days kind of looking at what was what was off in our forecast. And we used several variables and actually three of them, <clears throat> um, three of them held up really, really well. But there was one that was significant to a high degree in recent elections and that was not significant at all in hmm. this election. And it has to do with the way that vote share had been allocated uh, among counties for the past several election cycles. And I think that that's a function of uh, more than anything else turnout. Like I think that turnout and then this urban rural divide that has become more like more profound and more distinct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so our forecast essentially assumed that there were some rural counties who have traditionally voted 
more democratic that we're going to continue doing that. And that was not the case. Hmm. Um, so that's our really, the, those are the big places that we missed. We're not done yet. We're going to keep trying to get better. That's right. At this and collecting more data and analyzing more data and being more systematic in how we use it. Um, you know, I've thought also too, there's been a lot of talk, you know, after 2016, there was a lot of talk about polls and how all the polls in 2016 were wrong and they missed it. And then after this race, certainly, you know, um, I heard from multiple people on election night, like, well, this just shows that you can't trust polls. Mm -hmm. I have mixed feelings about that and I'll, say why and and it <laughs> please do well so at, at first at first glance at first glance and using kind of the simplest possible metric yes the polls missed okay so um sooner poll had a pull out they're not gonna they're never gonna be 100 percent right correct um so on november 1st sooner poll put out a put out a poll that had a uh, stit 46.4 edmondson 41.6 powell 3.8 with 8.3 percent undecided mm-hmm. um and a margin of error of 4.6 okay okay the day before the election or two days before the election they actually released another one that had stit 47 edmondson 44 powell 2.7 with 6.2 percent undecideds and a 5.3 percent margin of error okay. so wider margin of error but you were undecided. Yes, and it was a smaller sample size. So mm. sample size in the first poll was like 447, and the mm. second one was like 388. Okay. Like that. That so, counts, yeah. so that's where the margin, that's where the error came from. So in one poll, you have a lead for stit of five, and another one, a lead for stit of three. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in the simplest possible terms, the poll called the winner correctly because stit won, right? Kind of the next iteration down, they missed obviously the margin significantly because they had Stitt winning by five and three. Stitt actually won by 12. Mm-hmm. So the first poll was off by seven. The second was off by nine, which is not great. Like right. it's not Like it's not awesome. However, I would submit to you that there is information contained therein that while it didn't predict the outcome we got, should have let all of us know that the outcome we got was at least possible, mm-hmm. right? And so, f- stay with me here. I know, I know your 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 liver doesn't want to think about this, but <laughs> but just bear with me for a second. So, if you take each one of those polls, okay, uh-huh. and you like the November the November first uh, poll, and you distribute the undecided voters proportionally based on the responses in the poll, right? Okay. So that means Stitt had forty six, Edmondson or forty one. 46.4, Edmondson at 41.6, and Powell had 3.8. Okay. So you take the 8.3 undecided voters mm-hmm. in that poll, you give 46.4 of them to Stitt, you give 41.6 of them to Edmondson, and you give 3.8 to Powell. Mm-hmm. So basically, you're saying, I think the 8.5% of people who aren't decided, right. when they decide, they're going to break out the same way that right. everybody else is. Right. 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 So when you do that, you get um, Stitt. 50.25, mm-hmm. Edmondson 45.05, Powell 4.1. Then when you apply that 4.6% margin, margin of error, 4.63, you get uh, Stitt 54.8, Edmondson 40.4. Oh. Pretty close to what we got. Right. Right? That's at the high end for Stitt. The low end for Stitt would be 45.6 and Edmondson 49.68. Hmm. Okay? Do the same thing with the poll on 11.4. Mm-hmm. Distribute the undecideds, 
you get 55.24 for Stitt, mm-hmm. 41.5 for Edmondson. Do it the other way, 44.5 for Stitt, 52.16 for Edmondson. You average those out. The average high end for Stitt is 55%, and the average low end for Drew is 41%. Hmm. And the results we got were 54.3 and 42.2. That's pretty close. Right. So, again, that's not the outcome that the poll predicted, mm-hmm. but it is within the range of possibilities that the poll saw. Right, right. And so, to me, to me, as folks were looking at the polls and saying that they missed this completely, they're ignoring, I mean, 8.5% undecided voters? Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Right. That's a lot of undecided voters. Yeah. Right. Let me that's ten percent. Yeah. That's tens of. Th- I mean, you know, you had like what six? Like uh, when you got a million million point two people right casting votes, that's a hundred thousand votes that are right. undecided. Right. Right. Um, so that's a lot of votes. Yeah. Um, and and so when you ignore the undecideds, and then when you ignore the margin of error, mm-hmm. that's where you can come off thinking that the polls were terrible. Now, is it better and is it more informative if the polls say that, you know, Stitt's going to win 51-41 and then Stitt wins 52-41? Like, are the polls more informative that way? Sure. But, like, that's not always going to happen. Right, no. And and I think looking at, as we did, historical data helps shed some light on what might happen in the future, right? Because, Because voting trends are somewhat slow to change. No, they are. And I think... I, th- I think that that's right. And I think that this shows, you know, our forecast did not have a turnout model in it. And we talked like we didn't, we said that the results our forecast predicted were going to be independent of turnout. And that's true because turnout was essentially built into some of the variables that we were looking at. Right. And those are the variables that we missed. Right. And so it's the same thing with the polls. I think that what you see in Sooner poll, the reason they missed it is because they, their turnout model didn't mm-hmm. end up reflecting exactly right. what the electorate looked like. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I'm excited to dig more into the data. We're going to have some more kind of data analyses and some uh, additional maps and graphs uh, rolling out. Fun things. Over the next few weeks. So stay tuned to our social media and our blog for that. Um, Scott, I have two announcements. Do you have anything else? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. So our... Uh, so I have two announcements before we wrap up here. One is that this coming Tuesday, November 21st, is our 21st? Is that the right day? Uh, I think so. 20th, sorry. So I have two announcements. Um, the first one is that this coming Tuesday, November 20th, is our next West Wing watch party. We're going to do that at the Tower Theater or excuse me, Tower Cinema, which is at the Tower Theaters, just upstairs in the balcony. Uh, I believe that is at 7 o'clock p.m. on Tuesday. So if you're a fan of the West Wing, um, it's a great time to come out and watch it. I will be there wearing probably some form of West Wing weekly apparel, a lapel pin or something. And uh, we're going to watch the Thanksgiving episode from season one or two. Let's see. Uh, Shibboleth? Shibboleth. Season two. Season two. Um, and so that's a great episode. One of the greatest episodes of television ever. Agreed. Of any show. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, and maybe next year we'll watch the other episode, The Indians in the Lobby. Watched it yesterday. Did you? <laughs> well, I'm not at all surprised. Um, I will watch it myself probably on, on Thanksgiving. 
much to my wife's chagrin. I, I might watch it on Thanksgiving too. Um, so that's on November 20th. And then just some dates to be aware of um, as we move into the new year. Um, January 14th is going to be the day that Governor Stitt takes his uh, oath of office. They plan to do it on the steps of the Capitol and the South Steps, which have been redone and are newly open again, um, which is pretty exciting. Uh, and so he will have his his uh, swearing in that day. Other statewide elected officials will also be sworn in that day. I don't know if they do it all outside at the same time or how that happens. I'll try to find out. We've got some time to let you know. We've got two months until then. So that's January 14th. Mark your calendars if you'd like to be there. I will be there. Um, maybe we'll try to do some interviews that day. That'd be fun. And then uh, later that week, January 17th, is the uh, deadline for all the bills to be filed for the uh, 2019 legislative session. So they can start filing bills now. Some bills have already been filed. Um, Scott, w- <laughs> typically what will happen is you'll not see very many bills filed now. And then what will happen is like the day of the filing deadline, there will be like hundreds uh, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of bills filed. And most of them won't have any language in them at all. Right. right. Just shell but, bills. Yeah. They have a bill that doesn't have any legislative language, but in order for the bill to potentially be considered, they have to like, they have to file like it has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So between now and the start of the session, we will uh, now we have some time off and we're going to actually develop some of the resources that we've been talking about for a while, um, like how a bill becomes a law in the Oklahoma legislature and how that process happens. It's a little more complicated than just the uh, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill schoolhouse rock thing. But that's a good place to start. It is a good place to start. So we'll, I'll try to make it entertaining. I can't guarantee that I'll make a cartoon about it, but we'll have something animated. Um, not, it'll be like an animated slideshow. Maybe I'll dress up as a bill. Ooh. Do a little bill dance. Right. Wrap me up in paper. Just, why is that mummy dancing? (laughs) (laughs) Mommy, what's wrong with the notepad? Uh, so, so pay attention to that. Um, if you are someone who has a desire for something to change, now's a good time to reach out to your state legislators, your house rep and your senator. If they're brand new, certainly reach out and say hello. They are able to file some as well. House reps can each file eight bills. Senators can file an unlimited number. Fun fact, not everyone files a bill. And to quote uh, Oklahoma City Mayor David Holt, former state senator, he said... This is a couple of years ago, he was talking to some colleagues and he's like, well, you know, what are you guys working on this year? And they're like, oh, we don't know. He didn't name who it was, but he was just kind of appalled that some legislators didn't even file any bills. He's like, what are you doing here? Just hanging out, waiting around to vote on something that you didn't run? Like, what's your contribution? I think is the bottom line. I'm amazed that he was so shocked by that. <laughs> well, he's a go-getter. You, <laughs> that's you, true. You may have noticed. That's true. So, all right. Um, I think that's it. For this episode, Scott, do you have anything else? I got nothing. All right. Well, in that case, let's be done. Uh, that brings us to the end of this episode. And don't forget to subscribe and rate the pod on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, excuse me. And um, tell your friends about it. Share it on social media. Text them. I know it's a little more work to share a podcast, but we would really appreciate it if you did. We still are Oklahoma's highest rated politics podcast. I'm dedicated to Oklahoma politics. Preach. Which is pretty exciting. You can follow us on Twitter at Let's Fix This Okay. 
Scott is at SC Melson. I am at Andy OKC. You can shoot us an email at podcast at letsfixthisok.com. That's our website, by the way. Also on Facebook and Instagram. We're basically Let's Fix This OK everywhere. Um, our theme music that you're listening to right now is provided by the Sugar Free All Stars. We appreciate that. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with the government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a good week.